0: Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had people, someone, tell you that you remind them of someone else? Now imagine if somebody were to tell you, you know, you remind me of the Apostle Paul. You'd be like, oh, that's neat. That's pretty neat. You'd be happy. You'd probably say, praise God, thank you. But in your mind, you're like, wow, that's pretty amazing They think of me like that. Maybe somebody has told you, you look like this famous you know, man or this famous woman, and you think in your head like, oh, that's nice, because you know, they're you know, pretty or handsome, and that person's making an association, so it's not being compared with the Apostle Paul, but that's still something nice to hear. But what happens if somebody told you, you know, when I'm around you, I, I kind of see you got a little of Adolf Hitler in you. <laughs> the reaction, oh, or yikes, or what, would be like a legitimate reaction that would come to mind. Or if somebody were to say to you something like, you know, you really remind me of Colonel William Tavington, you might know him, Benjamin Martin's arch enemy in the movie The Patriot. I just remember when I was younger, having seen that movie, I'm like, that is one of the most bad individuals that I've ever seen depicted in a movie. I'm not endorsing you to go watch that, I'm not saying anything like that, I'm just saying that man depicted in many ways to me evil. And you'd probably think, if you heard something like that, like first, like, oh, how so, And unless, unless you were unashamedly cognizant of your evil, and you were, you know, like sadistic like he was, you would take such a comparison, not as a compliment, but you would take it as a kind of check to say, what in the world are you seeing in me that makes me remind you of that one? Now, the reason why I say that is, the point is, whether we like it or not, in some sense, Our lives are, in some sense, falling into a kind of long line of other men and women. Now, it doesn't mean that we are carbon copies of other individuals or previous Christians. I don't mean that. We're not carbon copies of previous Christians or previous apostates. But it does mean that whether we know it or not, our lives are patterned after, say, faithful disciples or lukewarm Christians or hedonistic pleasure seekers. Or prosperous worldlings. Or compromising man-pleasers. In some way, shape, or form, we're walking in previously trodden paths. And we may be imaging, although we do not realize that others who have gone before, we may be standing on shoulders that we do not want to stand upon. And by God's grace, that will not be the case among us, and the warnings like those found in this text, I think work to that end. In the verses before us, Jude will expound upon the behavior of certain men that he described as creeping into the church as unnoticed. He's going to expound upon their behavior not only in declarative statements, but with historical comparisons, particularly in verse 11 to three men in whose shoes they walked Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Such associations should make us, I think, take a minute, ponder the path of our feet, and see whose sandals our shoes most resemble. Now, the, the thrust of this, if you go through these verses, right, the thrust of this is not so much to say, hey, make sure that you are not these men, though that is a legitimate application. He's describing what these men are like, what they do, what their character is, and doubtless a takeaway, at least one takeaway would be, do not be like this but essentially what he's doing most immediately is he's kind of drawing a composite sketch He's kind of giving you characteristics that form a depiction of these individuals so that a healthy church can identify these individuals and so they do not have the opportunity to creep in unawares because people say, whoa, 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 I've seen that man before. I've seen the composite sketch. I know who that is. I know who that woman is. I know the pattern of such individuals. I see these boxes being checked off. It's important. If a church is going to stay healthy, we have to know what to be on the lookout for. And to say certain individuals could creep in, and if they go undetected, they end up doing damage, and they could leaven an otherwise, practically speaking, unleavened loaf. Now, as we get into the text, you'll remember that last week we were in verses 5 through 7. And in verses 5 through 7, Jude set before us, Historical examples of those who were apostates in one way or another. Those who essentially fell away. Who had light of revelation, but departed from the light of revelation that they had. He set before us three examples. Israel in the wilderness. Then the angels who left their own abode and their own domain, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. Each... The the Old Testament covenant people of Israel, the, the angels who knew what it was like to be in the presence of God and know the glories of heaven, and even Sodom, Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities who had some measure of revelation, whether in their own consciences or recent history and so on, they had light of revelation, but they were apostates in that they departed from, they fell away from the revelation and the light they had. Does that make sense? So when you hear me say apostates, that's really what I mean. Could an apostate be a false teacher? Doubtless. Were these people false teachers? Doubtless some of them were. We'll see the dynamics of that as we go through this. But when you hear apostate, you're thinking somebody who has the light of revelation, the light of God's will, and maybe basks in that light for a little while, and then departs from that light. That's what an apostate is. So verses 5 through 7, he gave historical examples of how apostates meet judgment in the end. So it was a warning, essentially, to the people to say, look, you don't want to go down the path that they're on. This is where it ends. Look what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Look what happened to these angels. Look what happened to Israel in the wilderness. Israel in the wilderness died. They were brought out of Egypt, but they died in the wilderness. Those over 20 years old, with the exception, of course, of Joshua and Caleb. Think about the angels who left their proper domain, but are now reserved in everlasting chains the great day of judgment. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, the city that was, those cities that were incinerated, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, excluding where Lot went to. So he gives these warnings, but now we're going to see a depiction of who these men were, what they were like. And I think we're going to learn quite a bit along the way. We begin in Jude, verse 8, where we read, Likewise also these dreamers, defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. So you notice in our text that first word, likewise. Immediately, in your mind then, you're forming a comparison between with what came before and what is about to come. Likewise, these men, these certain individuals, these dreamers, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, they are like these previous examples, In some ways, they're like Sodom and Gomorrah. In some ways, they are like the angels who left their own domain and proper abode. In some ways, they are like the children of Israel in the wilderness. There was resemblance there. Each of the three groups fell away from, departed from, rebelled against the revelation that they had, And now we're going to see, in the terms that follow, they do in some ways bear particular resemblance to Sodom and the angels who left their proper domain. But under further scrutiny, there are um, commonalities that rebellious Israel in the wilderness shares um, with these apostates as well. I want to call your attention also to something that's not seen in your translation before you. There's a word here in the Greek, likewise, you see that in your translation, but there's also a word, mentoi, mentoi, And that word mentoi could be translated as yet. So you could read yet, likewise, or likewise yet, and when you see that word, well, you don't see it because it's not there, but if you were to see that word yet, it connotes the idea not only of similarity, that's the idea of the word likewise, but the word yet connotes that these people proceeded in the behavior that they engaged in despite the aforementioned examples. You see that? So they were like these people, likewise. Yet, they went in the example of these people despite having had the historical examples of what God does to apostates. You know, just to kind of apply this again, I mentioned this in previous weeks, it's not enough to know the historical accounts. Right? You can know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can know about the angels who left their proper domain. You can know about Israel in the wilderness. It's not enough just to know about them. We have to know as we ought to know. We must heed the admonition and instruction therein. We liken it to a red light, right? What good is it if you know a red light is in front of you while you're driving, but you don't stop? I know it's there. I know where the red lights are down Highland Boulevard. But if you don't stop when you're driving down Highland Boulevard with those red lights, what can happen? You can get into a lot of danger. You could die. You can do a lot of damage and so on you might say that these apostates ran their share of moral and ethical red lights. So Jude then proceeds not only to simply say that these men will be judged, seeing the roads that they were on, uh, verses 5 through 7, you might say he goes on to describe the sins that warrant that judgment. Okay, so still in verse 8, look how he describes these men. Before he talks about their behaviors, he identifies them. He identifies them as dreamers. Dreamers. Now, I think, my my opinion is, that he's using this language most likely because these were individuals who claimed that their dreams had spiritual authority. Well, We'll get to another possibility, but I think most likely what's going on here is that they were dreamers in the sense that they had these dreams... And because they're apostates, because they're trying to lead people astray, because they're going against the faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints, they are coming up with their opposing revelation, which they're saying is kind of greater revelation. I think that would be the implication. In fact, the word that's used here is a participle that can be understood, as the CSB notes, as relying on their dreams. If that's the case, then the idea is... That they not only turn the grace of God into licentiousness, as we saw earlier in Jude verse 4, but then in some measure they justify their behavior with their dreams, as though their dreams carried spiritual authority so as to overturn the revealed word of God. They use their dreams, I would think, to justify their sinning. Now, there are examples, both Old Testament and New Testament, there are examples of God giving dreams as a means of revelation. Revelation. You can see it in the Old Testament. You can see that in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, especially with Joseph and so on. But Israel was warned very specifically. You look at Deuteronomy 13. You look at verses 1 through 5. Israel was warned not to listen to the dreamer of dreams who shared his dream as a mechanism to draw people away from Yahweh. Now, just as a little bit of an aside, if you go into Deuteronomy 13, God told Israel that if you have one who's a dreamer or they speak a prophecy that comes to pass or they do a sign so as to lead you away from the Lord your God, know that the Lord your God is testing you. That's essentially what's being said in Deuteronomy 13. Pretty amazing to think that even in that Old Covenant context, God was telling the people that there may be people who do signs or say things and get some things right, but if it doesn't line up with my word, you're being tested to see whether or not you'll hold to my word. I think that's really important for us to be mindful of, especially in the last days in which we live. You go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you see that the coming of the lawless one is in with the working, in accordance with the working of Satan, with all lying signs and wonders. We shouldn't be surprised as the day of Christ draws near. If there are lying signs and wonders that happen, we shouldn't be surprised about that we should know that we are to be tethered to the revealed word of God, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Well, more about the idea of, of dreams. Through the prophet Jeremiah, Yahweh repeatedly warned the people about false prophets who had tried to make his people forget him by their dreams. Jeremiah 23, verse 27. The Lord said that he was against such individuals. Jeremiah 23, verse 32. In between both of those statements, in Jeremiah 23, we see the Lord say this through Jeremiah. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? Zechariah, likewise, wrote of diviners who told the false dreams and provide vain comfort. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2. I say all that to say... Suffice it to say, in the days of Jude, even as it was and before the days of Jude, even as it is now, dreams have been a tool found in the tool belt of false prophets and false teachers and apostates. You must be very careful to stay tightly tethered to the word of God. It's also possible, while not excluding the possibility of the former, it's also possible that Jude called them dreamers, because they were filled with sin-filled fancies that accompany those who are spiritually asleep. Kind of look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. The implications of this might even go further, having implications to Leviticus 15, 16, and 17. So they might be those who are just like dreamers in the sense that they're filled with sin-filled fancies and they seek to live out their sinful dreams. Now we come to another triad, Remember. In the book of Jude, we see a lot of triads. Well, here's another triad. Look at what these men do. Three things are said here they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. All right, first the expression, they defile the flesh. Still in verse 8, they defile the flesh. This speaks to the sensuality of these apostates defile the flesh we are told in verse 4 that they turned the grace of God into a license for sin. They doubtless indulged in sexual immorality. They sinned against their own bodies to use language from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. They defiled the flesh. It's as though even as Sodom and Gomorrah, they raged against the light of revelation that they had and they did the sexually immoral things to one degree or another that were found in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. Remember, that word sexual morality and then running after or going after strange flesh was used to describe Sodom and Gomorrah and now we find these individuals defile the flesh one good way to know if such individuals are among an assembly is to use language from a couple of commentators is whether or not there is loosening of sexual immorality and the acceptance of behavior that other generations of Christians would have found impossible to justify Now, let me just say this. This is important. You might say, well, I I didn't hear... You know, we're talking about sexual morality in the past few weeks quite a bit. I didn't hear as much of this when we were going through Psalm 18 because it just wasn't there in Psalm 18. Like, it is here. It's here. It's something that marked these individuals. It's something that clearly was a part of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's something that arguably seems to be a part of what happened with the angels who left their proper domain. It's here, so it... It's prudent. It's wise to talk about it. I just want to say, I think when sexual immorality is tolerated as an accepted cultural norm that Christians or the church has to adapt to, or when the thought that young and old alike cannot be expected to treat their boyfriends and girlfriends as though they're brothers and sisters, Refraining to do with them what they wouldn't do with their own brothers or sisters until they are married, I think, if that becomes the accepted thinking in a local church, the thinking of dreamers has crept in. They defile the flesh. And I, there's more you can say about this, because I, I would argue, my opinion is, and I think it's pretty safe to say. I think it's pretty safe to say, they didn't think they were defiling the flesh. They didn't think it was a big deal. I'm sure you could talk to many Christians in in professing Christian churches who would say, no, I could do this behavior and that behavior, and that's not defiling the flesh. I could go to this degree of sin, and that's okay, and I'm here to tell you, you should be treating another brother or sister as a brother or sister until you are married. I want to make that point. Lest we settle for standards as though we are indoctrinated by the world, accepting cultural standards and then imputing them on the responsibility of Christians. No, we are to be a pure people, whether you are young or old whether you're married or single you are called to be pure you are called to not defile the flesh and you can by God's grace walk in purity it's not some impossibility sometimes you can hang out with enough Christians like yeah it's impossible to walk in purity it's not impossible you can walk in sexual purity you do not have to defile the flesh I'm not saying you're going to be perfect this side of heaven and you're never going to have thoughts that you have to take captive and so on I'm not saying that but I'm saying you want to keep the standard before your eyes And I think if you have the right standard before your eyes, by the grace of God, you'll be attracted to that standard. It's as though the truth of God's revelation before your eyes will, so to speak, kind of mixing metaphors, magnetize you. And you'll be drawn to that behavior if you have the right standard. But if you don't have the right standard, you're going to justify one immorality of another. Whether it's immorality that goes on with your body, whether it's immorality that goes on in your mind or with your eyes. You want to say, I don't want to defile the flesh. I want to walk in purity. I want to walk in purity. So important. So important. I think these dreamers, um, they didn't think they were defiling the flesh. They likely thought they were free to indulge these passions. And so one other thing I would say is that a warped mind... A mind that does not understand biblical truth rightly, that perverts biblical truth, a warped mind that removes one anchor of truth after another, eventually becomes a gateway into a drifting, into self-justifying, sin-celebrating, biblical truth-hating rebellion. You let enough of those anchors go, and you're not surprised when you start drifting further and further than you thought you'd ever be. Next, we're told that they reject authority, They were, these dreamers, these apostates who crept in and fell away from the light of revelation that they had, they were like those in the days of Judges. Remember the days of Judges, to use language from uh, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It's a refrain that's seen more than one time towards the latter part of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes we saw that they rejected the authority of Jesus' lordship. They denied him as master and lord. We saw that in Jude verse 4. So it shouldn't be surprising if you deny and reject the authority of Jesus Christ, it wouldn't be surprising that you would go on and reject other forms of authority as well. So we know they reject authority, namely his, and possibly they rejected ecclesiastical authority, leaders in the church who would seek to correct them, political authority, Structures within civilization that God has ordained, to use language from Romans 13, they rejected authority. And by default, if you reject Jesus' authority, you will reject submitting to authority structures that he says to submit to. Whether that's within the marriage, whether that's within uh, the home And fathers, with children, whether that's within the civil sphere, whether that's with um, the ecclesiastical sphere in the local church, and so on. If you reject his authority, you shouldn't be surprised if all other forms of of authority are rejected as well. Um, Now, not to go off on an extended tangent here, but I think it's important to note, have you ever considered the way in which our world has sought to indoctrinate one generation after another into the rejection of authority? and the exaltation of self and autonomy. It's amazing to me. Generations prior to me, and I think even you know, generations after my generation, have sung Frank Sinatra's My Way. If you listened to one of the Second Samuel messages recently, you heard me mention this, right? But if you've ever seen people like at a concert sing like, Frank Sinatra's My Way when he sings it with him and he has, has sung it in the past, it's like a religious experience. They're like, here we go it's like people are rising to their feet, like this is the song, this is the anthem. You see some people may be crying, some people are just like mesmerized. Why? Because they can resonate with that. It's like the passion of a fallen man or woman's heart. I want to do it my way. My way. When I was a kid, one of the popular movies that was out was The Lion King. And one of the songs that I liked, I can still remember so many of the lyrics of it now, was when Simba sang, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. And you know why he wanted to be king in the movie? Because he says, nobody, nobody's going to say, do this. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to say, be there. Nobody's going to say, stop that. Nobody's going to say, see here. Free to run around all day. Free to do it all my way. Imagine kids walking around singing that. Just singing, like singing rejection of authority. Singing it out. Think about kids in this generation walking around singing the words of Elsa. Just saying, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> they're just completely rejecting authority. Look well, at the cute kids. They're rejecting whole authority. No right, no wrong. Now, if the words were a little different, we'd be taken back. Like if they said, you know, there's no God, there's no Christ, no, not for me. Like, whoa, stop. But it's okay to say, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no rules for me. See the ways in which we're just indoctrinated as a fallen people? That's what we want in our fallen frames. We want to reject authority. The dreamers of Jude's day appear to have been living out that kind of perennial dream of fallen men and women. To use language from Psalm 2 verse 3, seeing the Lord's yoke as bonds that they want to break into pieces and cast away, rather than a means to find rest and fulfillment. Right When Jesus is inviting people to take his yoke upon them, what are they going to find? They're going to find rest for their souls. It's under his authority. It's under his lordship that you find rest and peace and fulfillment and joy. It's not outside of it. Outside of it, you will be mastered by something. You'll be mastered by your own passions. You'll be, you'll be carried by the prince of the power of the air. You will be under some authority. You will be constrained by something. But you can be, by the grace of God, under the loving lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of his leading and guiding and authority in your life is for your good, for your peace, for your joy, for your fulfillment, for, at the end of the day, his glory and your good embrace his authority, embrace it, even when it's hard. You know, we'd all want to reject the authority of God's appointed king. You know, you know we'd all want to be like, in our fallen frame, you know who we'd, we all want to be like? We'd all want to be like Adonijah. Adonijah. If we continue our study past 2 Samuel and eventually get into 1 Kings, you'll be freshly acquainted with Adonijah. Adonijah was the king who made himself king. He wasn't supposed to be king. God had appointed that Solomon would be king, but what did Adonijah do? Adonijah's like, I'm going to be king. I just can't wait to be king. So he basically gathers an entourage around him. He, He has them blow the trumpets and so on, and he's celebrating his own kingship. He made himself king. He rejected God's appointed king, and he made himself king which is what we would all want to do in our fallen frames. We all would want to reject God's anointed and appointed ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all would want to make ourselves king. And if by the grace of God God, you don't want to do that, it's because the grace of God has found you. It's because the true grace of God, to use language from 1 Peter 5.12, has found you. And in it you stand. And you embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, we come to uh, what else they do. They speak evil of dignitaries. They speak evil of dignitaries. Well, the word that's used here um, for speak evil is an inflected form of a, of a Greek word, uh, blasphemeo. Uh, sounds like the word blaspheme, um, it means to speak evil. Sometimes it could have a nuance that the kind of evil of the kind of evil being spoken of. Sometimes it could be reviling or hurling abuse, Matthew 27 verse 39. It could mean to speak with irreverence towards God or concerning sacred things. You can see those examples in Revelation 13:6, 6, Revelation 16:11. So, these people, they speak evil, they revile, they blaspheme in some measure dignitaries. Now, when you see the word dignitaries and when you hear it, you're probably thinking of civic authorities when you think dignitaries. However, I don't think that's the best understanding of the word here. The word that's used here is doxas. Doxas could be literally rendered as glories. Glories. They speak evil of glories. Perhaps the implication being Glorious ones. So while the English word, dignitaries, can speak of civic authorities, and it wouldn't surprise me if they spoke evil of any form of authority, uh, dignitaries and otherwise, but given the fact, if you look ahead, given the fact that there is a reference to both Michael and Satan in the following verse, two angelic beings, as well as the, con- the context of Peter's use of this word in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, you can see verse 11 as well, this, I believe, is a reference to angelic beings. They speak evil of angelic beings. So in some way, they spoke evil of, they did not show the proper respect towards, and perhaps even reviled angelic beings. As to how this happened, we're not told exactly, but it's not difficult to imagine some possibilities. i just give you some possibilities. Perhaps some called attention to their behavior. And some called attention to the fact that even the angels of God were beholding the worship of God, to use language from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, that the angels are beholding the worship of God. And perhaps in response to that, they reviled the angels, as though they were above the angels. Who cares about angels I will judge angels. Maybe they had an over-realized eschatology. Sometimes false teachers and apostates seem to have that. And they think that the age to come is in the age that is. And they're saying, well, the scripture says we're going to judge angels. I'm judging them right now. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe because they were so antinomian. They were so given to lawlessness. They were anti-law. And maybe some called attention to the fact that both in the Old Testament and New Testament alike, we see that angels were involved in the giving of the law. They were mediators of the law. You see this in a bunch of places in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 33, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 68, verse 17. And the examples could go on. Acts seven fifty-three, Galatians three nineteen, Hebrews 2, verse 2. Perhaps the angels' connection to being mediators of the law, A, and B, the heretics' rejection of any authority outside of their own, led to them reviling angels maybe because they hated the law of God so much and they didn't see it as holy and good as Paul said it was. Perhaps, if this word has application not only to good angels, um, and that would be the, the easy the easy um, understanding, that, that's, where it, that's where this word would likely fit. But even if it had a rendering also to um, fallen angels, maybe they were told that they were teaching doctrines of demons and they reviled Demons. And spoke in ways with brash, arrogant boldness that they had no place speaking like. I think Gene Green's comment suggests a likely possibility at the end of the day, generally speaking, the heretics' rhetorical strategy was to exalt their own honor and status even at the expense of angelic beings. Even at the expense of angelic beings. You see this sadly in church history. And, and particularly in some of the cults that have been formed and false religions, you'll find oftentimes that false teachers will make associations with supposed associations with angels. You think of Mormonism with Joseph Smith claiming to have received revelation via golden plates and then spectacles with which to read what was on those plates from the angel Moroni. We know that Muhammad claimed to receive the revelation of the Quran from an angel. Gabriel. So so you'll see that there are false teachers throughout history. There are apostates who will make associations with angels and they will revile. They'll misspeak about them. They'll misrepresent them. They'll slander them. They'll say things that they ought not to say. And it's pretty pretty disturbing to see when that happens. More about that in a moment because I think there's a lot of good application for us to um, be aware of. But with that being said, I do want to say just briefly, I think you've already seen this, but I'll just say it briefly. If you're just looking at the Characteristics of these individuals, already you have some takeaways. Yes, you're seeing a composite sketch of what apostates look like. They are those who indulge the flesh, they defile the flesh, they walk in uncleanness, they're sexually immoral, so you see that. They reject authority, and they don't have control of their tongues. More about that in a moment. They're willing to speak so brashly and boldly about things they don't even know about, to use language from Jude verse 10. This is a little bit of the composite sketch of what an apostate looks like. But for us, we're reminded already just to say, I am called to walk in purity. I am called to embrace God-appointed authority structures. And I'm called to watch my words and to speak in a way that is befitting a son or daughter of the living God. Well, now, you wouldn't want to be like these guys. But I couldn't resist saying the following. I guess I could resist it, but you want to be like Mike. (laughs) This Mike. Michael the Archangel. That's what Jude is doing here. He's saying, these guys, look at what they do. But this is the Michael you want to be like. You want to be like Michael. See what Michael did. Look at Michael's example. And let's see what Jude says. And let's see the instruction we are to draw from it. He said, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So here Jude references two angelic beings. The first is Michael. More about that in a moment. I do want to draw your attention to 2 Peter chapter 2. Because what Jude is mentioning here specifically, Peter seems to call attention to generally. In 2 Peter chapter 2, um, verse 10, Peter wrote that these individuals, these apostates who would come in, that they despise authority... But then he goes on and he says, and we see this in verse verse 10 through verse 11, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries or literally glories, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Seems that Peter is speaking about the same kind of thing. Peter is general and Jude is specific. Before we get into the details, let's see. Uh, The two angelic beings that we are introduced to right here. First is Michael the archangel. Michael the archangel was and is a faithful angel, a faithful servant of the living God. He is referenced in Daniel chapter 10 verse 13 as one of the chief princes. In verse 21 of that same chapter, he's called Daniel's or Israel's prince in the phrase, your prince. He's called the great prince in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, with apparently a specific responsibility over Israel. If you look in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, for instance, and you can go on beyond there, we even see the angel, Archangel Michael's position there in leading angels against Satan in battle. Michael and his angels, and the dragon, or Satan, and his angels. So Michael is in a position of high authority. We're in the upper echelon, basically the top of angelic power structures, if you will, authority structures. So that's Michael, the archangel. The title archangel speaks of his leadership position. It's also used, that identification archangel, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Likely a reference to Michael as well there. And then we see the devil is referenced the devil. He, was, he is known as Satan, the dragon, the ancient serpent of old. And to think about this, that Michael knew Satan before Satan had even fell. Right? Lucifer, son of the morning, he knew him before his fall. And then he would have battle with him as depicted in Revelation 12, with him post-fall, and then an account like this. I do want to say this immediately. When you look at something like Revelation 12, you can see that both Michael and Satan have leadership positions over other angelic beings. In uh, Revelation 12, 7, as I just referred to you, it said, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But the other thing I want to call your attention to is that that reference, as well as what's here in Jude, verse 9, reminds us that Michael and Satan are, if you will, counterparts. Satan is the opposite of God in so many ways. God's uncreated, Satan is created. God is holy and perfect and good, and Satan is has rejected good and embraced evil and so on. But God and Satan are not counterparts. A counterpart would be found, if anything, in Michael. Michael and Satan. They're, They're counterparts, they're both angelic beings. I just want to establish in your mind, I don't want you to have this kind of wrong version of, of God and Satan as though like one is the, the yang to the other's yin or something like that, that they're these two you know, uh, existing eternal forces of good and evil or so on. No, no, it's not like that. God has no equal. God has no equal. He's the holy, uncreated one. In him we live and move and have our being. There's no battling with God, as depicted well in Revelation 19 when Jesus returns, or as depicted in Revelation 20. It's not even a battle. He is unstoppable. He has no equal. God does not have an equal. Now we get to the phrases here. Back to the text. The phrases, in contending with the devil, if you look at verse 9, and when he disputed about the body of Moses, gives us a little bit of a glimpse into the interaction among these angelic beings and that's a that's, that's a mysterious world so to speak a mysterious realm that we don't really know much about like what does it look like for angels like what does it look like in revelation 12 when angels are battling with other angels what does that look like what do these interactions look like we don't have much insight into that world maybe you look at revelation 20 for instance where there's the angel that came down for heaven from heaven uh, unnamed At least in that account, he's not named for us, but he's one who is described as having not only a key, but a great chain in his hand with which he lays hold of Satan. You see that in Revelation 20, verses 1 and 2? So you get a little bit of a picture there of him having a key and a chain and laying hold of Satan. We don't have much insight into that world. Here, though, it's not a physical battle. It doesn't appear to be that. Here, it appears to be a kind of dispute here it appears to be a kind of back and forth that Satan would have liked to have engaged Michael in. That's what it appears to be. The Greek word translated as contending can mean to judge back and forth or to discern or judge between things, while the word translated as disputed can mean to discuss or reason or dispute. So, if you look at this account here, as we see it in Jude you don't have a, uh, a place in the Old Testament where you can go and see this thing happen. You don't have that. The closest you would have is Deuteronomy 34. In Deuteronomy 34, that's where we see that Moses dies and he is to be buried by the Lord in a place that nobody knew. That's what we see in Deuteronomy 34. But here, Jude is giving us insight into other events that took place as well. So Moses' burial described in Deuteronomy 34, this dispute, however, is not found in the scriptures. It's not found, you know, Jude references, we talked about this last week, the book of Enoch, it's not found there. It's not found in rabbinical writings. You look at some early church writers like Clement of Alexandria and Origen, and it appears that this reference was found in an early work called, a pseudepigraphical work called The Assumption of Moses. The Assumption of Moses. But even in this work that's extra-biblical, outside the canon of Scripture, that account of this dispute that happened between Michael and um, Satan is not recorded in the existing manuscripts that we have. But simply put, and we'll talk more about the references to extra-biblical works when we get to Jude's reference of Enoch, and I'll talk more about that when we get there. Suffice it to say at this point, given Jude's reference of it, we know it happened, And it's very likely that Jude's readers were familiar with it as well. It likely was just something that people were aware of. Just as a quick example for this, think of when Paul talks about the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said that Jesus had said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You don't find that in the scriptures. So it's something that Jesus had said and was remembered and Paul communicates it. So perhaps this dispute was a part of the oral tradition that was accurate and passed down, recorded in the Assumption of Moses, and some early church writers had access to it. But regardless of those details, what's clear is that Jude references it. We know it happened, and Jude's readers were familiar with it as well. Now you start asking questions like this. okay? So if this dispute happened, if God was going to have Moses' body buried, and Michael has a part in seeing this go down... And Satan all of a sudden is disputing because he does not want to see Moses buried by Michael. And maybe he wants Moses' body for a reason. You begin to ask the question, why did he want Moses' body? We don't know. We're not told. Different possibilities have been suggested. And I think there's a lot of good possibilities here. Some suggest that he wanted Moses' body because he had intentions of using it for idolatrous worship in Israel. That's not hard to imagine, is it? I mean, for those of us who have come out of Roman Catholicism, for those of us who are familiar with what it was like in the days of the Reformation, with all the relics that existed in Roman Catholicism at that time, and how like the supposed body or different things associated with a person, their bones and so on, could be treated with such reverence to idolatrous ends, it wouldn't be difficult to see how Satan would want to use the body of Moses for idolatrous worship. Satan might have claimed that because of Moses' sin, he was not worthy of a proper burial. One commentator suggests that. Others suggest that he might have wanted to, to use language from D.A. Carson, to claim or destroy the body of Moses rather than bury him, perhaps on the account that Moses was a failure. Now, I'll tell you what I do think, and I'll show you why biblically I think this. I think that when Satan is disputing with Michael about the body of Moses, knowing that he is known as the accuser of the brethren, knowing what I'm going to reference to you from Zechariah chapter 3, my opinion is, I think that it's likely that it had something to do with him accusing Moses. Maybe he was saying, you know what Moses did at the waters at Meribah? He should have spoken to the rock and he struck the rock twice. You know how Moses killed an Egyptian? Maybe you just reference his sin in general. You know his sinfulness. He does not deserve a proper burial. He's mine. He belongs to me or something like that. I don't know exactly, but it's not hard to imagine some sort of accusation like that. And that fits the context of Michael's response, but more about that in a moment. The account, while distinct from, is at least to some degree reminiscent of Zechariah's vision, where Zechariah saw Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. In Zechariah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, we read the following. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh. We've talked about this on many occasions, that when you see that language, the angel of Yahweh, you're you're typically thinking in your mind, pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Before the angel of Yahweh and, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So look at the picture. Zechariah is getting this vision and he sees the angel of the Lord standing before Joshua. Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. But then he sees Satan accusing him. You go on a little bit further, you're going to see that Joshua in verse 3 was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel So he's clothed in filthy garments. So likely the accusations that Satan was giving to God in that moment were something like this. He's filthy. And he's the high priest, so likely in this vision, he's representative of the nation of Israel. He's filthy. They're filthy. They've sinned against you. They've broken your covenant so many times. You should, not keep your faithful, you should not show faithfulness to them. Do away with them. I don't know what the exact argumentation is, but at some level, he was accusing Joshua, and Joshua is depicted there as being filthy, a representative of the nation of Israel. Well, in verse 2, we see this. The Lord, or Yahweh, said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, Or Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? You go on to verse 4, and in verse 4, He spoke and said to those who were standing before Him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from Him. Again He said to Him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and, and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on His head. So they put a clean turban on His head, and clothed Him with garments while the angel of Yahweh was standing by. It's this beautiful Old Testament picture of justification, like, like you should be reading that or hearing that and you're thinking, wow, that depicts like what happened to me. I was filthy. I was deserving of God's justice and judgment and yet I've been made clean and I wear the righteousness of Christ. More about that in a moment. We'll come to that at the end. But as far as the context here, what is going on? I think the parallel is something like this. I think the parallel is something like this. Moses had died and Satan is accusing him talking about him disputing with Michael for the body of Moses likely doing what Satan was doing right here in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 accusing him and Michael realizing his position as one who is under authority who was not going to go beyond the authority that was given to him. He was not going to levy a reviling accusation against the devil, a reviling judgment, a blasphemous judgment, so he wasn't going to you know, give some invective, kind of disrespective assailing so as to censure the devil. That's not what he was going to do in that moment. Nor is he going to stand in the place of judgment and argue for Moses' exoneration. He does does what we all should take notice of. He appeals to the sovereignty of Yahweh. The Lord rebuke you. He realizes his place. He realizes his authority. He doesn't overstep his authority. He doesn't overstep his bounds. And he says, Yahweh rebuke you. This is incredibly instructive. The point is, That Michael, an angel of great power and authority, did not overstep his authority. He was on assignment from God. And whatever Satan's argument was, Michael simply leaned on the Lord's sovereignty. The Lord rebuke you. It was an appeal to God to exercise and assert his, God's, sovereign authority over Satan. And likely in this context, per Zechariah 3.2, to assert his authority over the accusations of Satan as well. Furthermore, to use language from Thomas Schreiner, the Lord's rebuke, paralleling what we see in, or Michael's rebuke, paralleling what we see in Zechariah, is not to be seen as simply a verbal dressing down. Rather, it would, quote, function as an effective response to Satan's accusation So that Moses would be vindicated and his vindication would secure his proper burial. So Michael does not take the place of judge. Michael doesn't even go so far as to denounce Satan as a slanderer. He just simply appealed to the Lord's judgment. And my guess is not too long after he said those words, not too long after he said, the Lord rebuke you, the rebuke ensued and so did Moses' burial and vindication. Connection with the false teachers would be something like this. The false teachers had no problem with slandering celestial beings, likely even hurling accusations and condemnations against angels. They had no problem with it. Yet Michael, so they're likely doing this against good angels, by the way. So they' like maybe they did it against evil angels, fallen angels too, but think about it, if they're, if they're speaking evil, if they're blaspheming, they're slandering, if they're casting judgments against good angels, you compare that with Michael, who is an angel, and when he's speaking with the devil, he doesn't even bring a riot or violent accusation against him. He just simply says, "The Lord rebuke you." What a comparison. Michael does not misspeak saying something. Slanderous or untrue, nor did he communicate an invective out of anger, and most particularly, he committed the matter to the Lord's judgment. He did not act as judge as though he could simply dismiss Satan's case or condemn Satan's behavior, etc. He appealed to the Lord that he would rebuke Satan and likely vindicate Moses. Now, briefly, and I'll I'll close here shortly, the takeaways from this appear to include at least this. The contrast between Michael's self-controlled speech and the brazen speech of the apostates who slander and make accusations and judgments without consideration or hesitation. We're not going to get to verse 10 today, but if you look at verse 10, they speak evil of whatever they do not know. They don't have insight into the angelic world. They don't know what they're talking about, but they feel so free to make judgments and assessments as though they do. You compare that with Michael's controlled speech. Whereas the apostates reject authority and as a result are a law unto themselves, speaking things they ought not, Michael appeals to God's sovereignty and God's authority. It is God and God only who is the vindicator of his people. Some closing applications. We'll stop here for today. Some closing applications, I think, would be this. I want to encourage you to make sure that you don't speak to either of those angels referenced there. You'll have plenty of time to speak to Michael. In the ages to come, it'll be amazing. You'll get to speak to him, Gabriel, and a whole host of other angels. You know, I, I've seen, I've seen you know, that there are out there prayers to the archangel Michael. You're not supposed to pray to him. You're not supposed to pray to Michael. You're not supposed to pray to anybody with the exception of praying to the Father through the Son or speaking to your Savior. That's You pray to your God, your amazing triune God. That's the one to whom you pray. You don't pray to Michael. But I also want to encourage you and warn you against speaking with the devil. Now, there's a few reasons for this, right? First, just think about this. Do you know how many people, sadly, I'm saying this seriously and I'm saying it sadly, you know how many people throughout the world today are probably saying something so they think to Satan? You know how many people are probably thinking they're rebuking Satan today? Sending him somewhere? You probably have people all over the world who in their rooms are sending Satan here, sending Satan there, who are saying this and that and are rebuking him and they're thinking they're talking to him, and they're not, he's not omnipresent. So I want to start here to say just very simply, you do not have insight into the invisible world around you. You could very easily be misrepresenting angels, both good or bad, by what you're saying is happening in the unseen world. For example, I remember years ago, some of you remember one of the early sermons that I preached here, I talked about a guy who was on TV. I don't remember the exact details, but he said, if you send me a certain amount of money then I'm going to do something special for you, I am going to dispatch the Passover angel. (laughs) Like, you're (laughs) going to what? And do I want that? (laughs) I know what the Passover angel did. What are you saying he's going to do for me if you're going to dispatch him? (laughs) But if you do, if you say something like that, right? So... So now you've misrepresented, right? So it may not be the exact dynamic, but it's a blasphemeo. You're slandering. You're saying something that's inaccurate. And then there's a certain sense in which you're reviling that individual by saying that you did something and that they did something that they didn't do. It could work that way towards the enemy, too. You can imagine somebody saying, the other day I came home and I knew that Satan was in my house and I told Satan, get out of my house. That would be like if you said, you know, the other day I came home and I saw George there and I told George, get out of my house. And I'm like, I wasn't in your house. And i like, well, it doesn't matter. You're evil. I don't like you. I told you to get out. Like, no, you can't do that. It's misrepresenting reality. You cannot see the unseen world. Jesus, with perfect clarity, can go through the unseen world and he can see what's going on. He could he speak to demons and cast out demons with such precision and clarity. He knew what the unseen world was. You do not have that insight. And sadly, so many times, Christians, when they should be doing what the Scripture says to do. You look at 1 Peter 5, resist the devil. What does it say right after that? Standing firm, standing steadfast in the faith. You lift up the shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the enemy. And then that looks like looking at a text like 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, that the Lord is faithful, who will guard you and establish you against the evil one. You submit to God, and, and, and you resist the wiles and the temptations of the flesh and the enemy. Yes, those dynamics are there, but you're not to engage in some sort of dialogue and you're not, to, you're not to begin to think that you're exercising some authority, that you're sending him here and you're sending him there. God is the one who's in sovereign control. And he's in sovereign control of where, the, of where the devil goes and what the devil does. Ultimately, at the end of the day, God is the one who's in control. He's not to be sent here and sent there and bound here and bound there by a whole bunch of Christians living throughout this world who cannot even perceive the unseen world accurately. So I want to tell you, be careful. You speak to your Father. You lean on. On his sovereignty. You lean on the loving lordship of your savior. To whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. You resist the devil. Standing steadfast in the faith you trust and believe that the Lord is faithful who will guard you and establish you against the evil one, and you seek to do his business. That's the business you are to be about, doing the good works that he's prepared beforehand for you to walk in, to preach the gospel, to share the truth of Christ, to love your neighbor, to love the lost, to serve the church well, and so on, to serve your family. That's what you're meant to do. So I hope that helps and puts a little bit of careful... um, Carefulness into the steps that we take and into the words that we speak. You want to be careful. Look at Michael's words. Careful. No invective. No slanderous assertion. No matter of making a judgment that he wasn't in the position to make. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. And just as a closing thought, and this is where I close, when I was thinking about Zechariah 3. I I imagined myself, I imagined myself, if I was in that proverbial courtroom, as it were, maybe you could do the same, and you imagine what Satan could say about you. Imagine the accusations that he could levy against you. You know what so-and-so did. I know. They are not worthy of your love. He is not worthy of your love. He's been so unfaithful to you. She's been so unfaithful to you. I saw when they do this, how could you, how could this even be one of your own? And so on. And then you look at that language from Zechariah 3 the Lord rebuked you. And it wasn't just a matter of censure towards the devil from God Himself, but it was connected with Joshua's vindication. And you have been vindicated by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not ashamed to call you brethren. That is amazing. So when those accusations come up in your mind, likely your own flesh, um, again, you can't perceive the unseen world, so you don't know to what degree uh, demonic forces may be involved in that. But when those condemnations uh, come up in your mind, those condemning thoughts, remember that the, the end of that story is Jesus has saved me. Jesus has washed me. Not because I was righteous. I wasn't. I'm, I'm, I'm still a sinner. I'm saved by grace, but I am His, and He's not ashamed to call me His. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way in which You guard Your people, You instruct Your people, You teach Your people, Lord. You are so faithful. What a Father You are. I pray, Heavenly Father, for us that You would help us, Lord, as a church, by Your grace, Lord, to Be protected that we wouldn't have, Father, by your grace, uh, an infiltration of these individuals who had crept into the church in Jude's day. That you might help us, Heavenly Father, to see the composite sketch, as it were, that's formed in these verses. That we might be uh, vigilant, Lord, not only externally, but vigilant internally in our own lives. We don't want to manifest these kinds of behaviors To think of us being purchased with the blood of your Son makes us all the more want to speak with carefulness and precision, not go beyond the bounds that are allotted to us, to walk in purity, to embrace your authority, Heavenly Father, and your authority structures. May you find us, Father, growing in those graces. Thank you for the great example of Michael in this text, who I know, to use language from the angel in Revelation 19, is a fellow servant, Thank you, Lord, that we are not only numbered among saints who are in the present uh, on this earth, yet those who are in heaven, but we are uh, alongside of angels, uh, as it were. We redeemed and they preserved, and we get to all join in the worship of you, the living God, the focal point of worship and glory and praise. Father, I pray if there'd be anyone in this room who maybe unknowingly, Lord, has those garments that... Joshua had on as representative of Israel as the high priest and garments that are filthy. I pray whatever that filth is, Lord, you know the depths of our sinfulness. You know the actions, the thoughts, the things that we've done. Perhaps by your grace, Lord, there would be this sense of joy that comes over such an individual as they think, I don't have to carry this hidden guilt. I don't have to suppress it. I don't have to pretend it's not there. I can rejoice in confessing that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that I could be clean. I could have a clean conscience and I could be made a new creation and I could be God's purchased possession forever. Not because of works of righteousness that I have done, but because of the work of Christ. Father, if such thinking would go through the mind of such an individual today, may it be, Lord, may it be, and may you draw them to yourself, and may they rejoice, Lord, in the garment of righteousness that was secured through the blood of your Son. We thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.